York. This is Democracy Now! Earlier today, I spoke with the family of Breonna Taylor. This morning, they were informed that the Justice Department has charged four current and former Louisville Metro Police Department officers with federal crimes related to Ms. Taylor's death. The Justice Department has announced federal criminal charges against four former and current Louisville police officers over their roles in the fatal shooting of Breonna Taylor, shot dead in her home during a no-knock police raid two years ago. We'll go to Louisville for the latest. Then we remember the life and legacy of Albert Woodfox, a former Black Panther who spent nearly 44 years in solitary confinement, longer than any prisoner in U.S. history. He died of COVID at the age of 75 Thursday, six years after he was freed from the Angola prison in Louisiana. I remember reading something from, uh, from Mr. Mandela, and he said, if no of a cause is no one, you can carry the weight of the world on your shoulders. And I thought what we were doing was a noble cause. So we were prepared, and so the beatings and the gassings and the decades of solitary confinement, you know, was really all though painful and difficult. It never got to the point where they were able to break us. We'll hear Albert Woodfox in his own words and speak to his brother, his attorney, and Robert King, who has imprisoned Angola with Woodfox for decades. The two of them and the late Herman Wallace were collectively known as the Angola Three. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The Justice Department's announced federal criminal charges against four former and current Louisville police officers over their roles in the fatal shooting of Breonna Taylor. Her death in a hail of police gunfire in March 2020 sparked protests across the United States and around the world under the banner Black Lives Matter. Former Louisville Metro Police Detective Joshua Jaynes was taken into FBI custody Thursday morning and charged with obstruction and civil rights violations, also charged with Louisville Police Sergeant Kyle Meany, Officer Kelly Hannah Goodlett, and former Louisville Police Detective Brett Hankison. This is the head of the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division, Assistant Attorney General Kristen Clark. Breonna Taylor should have awakened in her home as usual on the morning of March 13, 2020. Tragically, she did not. She was just 26 years old. As Attorney General Garland just stated, today's indictments allege that Louisville Police Detective Joshua Jaynes and Sergeant Kyle Meany drafted and approved what they knew was a false affidavit to support a search warrant for Ms. Taylor's home. That false affidavit set in motion events that led to Ms. Taylor's death. After headlines, we'll go to Louisville, Kentucky, for the latest on the charges against the four officers involved in Breonna Taylor's killing. The two white officers who actually shot her were not charged. Ukrainian officials are urging residents to evacuate the eastern Donetsk region and head west under a mandatory evacuation order for thousands of people. The order came as Russian troops intensified their assault on Ukraine's east, where President Volodymyr Zelensky said his troops are facing hell on the battlefield. 
killed. Meanwhile, a new report from Amnesty International finds Ukrainian forces are endangering the lives of civilians by establishing bases and operating weapons systems in populated residential areas, including in schools and hospitals. Amnesty says such fighting tactics violate international humanitarian law. The report drew an angry response from President Zelensky. Aggression against our state is unprovoked, invasive and, frankly, terroristic. And if someone prepares a report in which the victim and the aggressor are allegedly the same in some way, if some data about the victim is analyzed, while something that the aggressor was doing at that time is ignored, then this cannot be tolerated. In a statement, Amnesty International said, quote, being in a defensive position does not exempt the Ukrainian military from respecting international humanitarian law, unquote. A court in Russia has found WNBA basketball star Brittany Griner guilty of drug smuggling and sentenced her to nine years in a penal colony. During closing arguments Thursday, Griner took responsibility for bringing vape cartridges containing a small amount of cannabis oil with her through the Moscow airport, where she was arrested by customs authorities in February. She said the cannabis was prescribed for medical reasons. I understand. Everything that's been said against me, the charges that are against me, and that is why I pled guilty. But I had no intent to break any Russian law. I made an honest mistake, and I hope that in your ruling that it doesn't end my life here. President Biden called Brittany Griner's nine-year prison sentence unacceptable and promised to work to bring her home. Earlier today, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov said the Kremlin remains ready to discuss a prisoner swap involving Griner and former U.S. Marine Paul Whelan, who's been jailed in Russia on espionage charges since 2018. China says it'll sanction U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and her immediate family over her visit this week to Taiwan's capital, Taipei. On Wednesday, Pelosi became the most senior official to visit Taiwan in a quarter of a century from the United States. Her trip prompted China to launch large-scale military exercises in waters around Taiwan that effectively blockaded the island. Pelosi spoke to reporters earlier today as she wrapped up her tour of Asia in Tokyo, Japan and after China's foreign ministry called her actions vicious and provocative. They will not isolate Taiwan by preventing us to travel there. We've had high-level visits, senators in the spring, a bipartisan way, continuing visits, and we will not allow them to isolate Taiwan. On Thursday, Pelosi led a delegation of U.S. lawmakers who traveled to South Korea and toured the demilitarized zone that divides the Korean peninsula. Her trip came, as the United Nations said in a new report, North Korea has made preparations for a new nuclear weapons test this year, which would be the first such test since it exploded a hydrogen bomb in 2017. Back in the United States, Democratic Senator Kirsten Sinema said Thursday she'll support a budget reconciliation bill containing some of the Democrats' legislative priorities on health care and the climate crisis. As a condition of her support, Sinema demanded Democratic leaders agree to abandon a provision that— would close the so-called carried interest loophole, a tax break exploited by hedge fund and private equity managers to pay lower tax rates than middle-income workers. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said a revised version of the bill would be released on Saturday.
In Arizona, former TV news anchor, Trump supporter Carrie Lake has won the Republican gubernatorial primary. Lake narrowly defeated lawyer and businesswoman Karen Taylor Robson, who had been the, had the support of Vice President Mike Pence and other prominent Republicans. Carrie Lake put false claims about a stolen 2020 election at the center of her campaign and has said she would not have certified President Biden's victory. Her victory follows other Arizona election deniers who won Republican nominations in Tuesday's primary, including candidates for Congress, Senate and Secretary of State. The Biden administration's declared monkeypox a public health emergency. Thursday's declaration by Health and Human Services Secretary Javier Becerra comes two weeks after the World Health Organization declared the disease a global emergency. Officially, the United States has recorded nearly 3,000 cases of monkeypox, though the true toll is likely far higher due to severe shortages of testing. New York public health officials have discovered polio virus and samples of sewage taken from outside New York City, suggesting the virus is spreading in the community and that hundreds of people may have already been infected. Officials have tied the polio lineage discovered in Rockland County to recent samples taken in Israel and the United Kingdom. Polio mainly affects children and can sometimes cause paralysis or death. The United States declared the disease eradicated in 1979, but officials warned that unvaccinated people remain vulnerable. Only 60 percent of Rockland County's two-year-old children have been vaccinated against polio. That's 60 percent. In Florida, Republican Governor Ron DeSantis is facing backlash after he suspended Hillsborough County State Attorney Andrew Warren over Warren's promise not to prosecute people who seek or provide abortions in Florida. Warren, who's a Democrat and has been elected twice, condemned DeSantis's move as, quote, an illegal overreach and said his suspension, quote, spits in the face of the voters. DeSantis spoke at a news conference Thursday. I was shocked at the blatant violation of one of the most fundamental principles of our democracy, that the people, the voters, get to elect elected officials. I've been elected twice to serve as state attorney, and I've served as state attorney, and I've done it well. Crime is down. We're protecting people's rights. We have fought so hard for public safety and fairness and justice. If the governor thinks he can do a better job, then he should run for state attorney, not president. That's Hillsborough County State Attorney Andrew Warren. Governor DeSantis signed a bill into law in April that bans most abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. The measure is facing several legal challenges. The FBI's arrested former Puerto Rico Governor Wanda Vasquez over her alleged involvement in a bribery scheme to finance her 2020 gubernatorial campaign. Vasquez is accused of accepting bribes in 2019 and 2020 while she was governor from several people, including Julio Martin Herrera Bellutini, a banker who was under investigation by the agency that oversees Puerto Rico's financial institutions. In exchange for the donations, Vasquez reportedly demanded the resignation of the agency's director and later appointed a new one, a former consultant of Herrera's bank. Vasquez, Herrera, and a former FBI agent also face wire fraud and conspiracy charges in up to 20 years in prison if convicted on all counts. 
In Austin, Texas, a jury has ordered far-right conspiracy theorist and InfoWars host Alex Jones to pay $4.1 million in compensatory damages to the parents of Jesse Lewis, a six-year-old boy killed in the 2012 Sandy Hook Elementary School massacre in Newtown, Connecticut. For years, Alex Jones spread conspiracy theories that the Newtown shooting was a government hoax and the victims' families were paid actors, resulting in online harassment and death threats for Sandy Hook families. The jury is expected to reconvene today to decide how much Jones should pay the parents in punitive damages. And Albert Woodfox, who was held in solitary confinement longer than any pres prisoner in U.S. history, has died at the age of 75 from COVID. The former Black Panther and political prisoner won his freedom six years ago after surviving nearly 44 years in solitary confinement. Woodfox and two fellow former Black Panthers became known as the Angola Three after they were wrongfully convicted of murder in retaliation for their political and racial justice activism inside Louisiana's notorious Angola prison. We'll have more on Albert Woodfox's life and legacy later in the broadcast. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The Department of Justice has announced federal criminal charges against four former and current Louisville police officers over their roles in the fatal shooting of Breonna Taylor. Her death in a hail of police gunfire in 2020 sparked protests across the United States and around the world under the banner Black Lives Matter. Former Louisville Metro Police Detective Joshua Jaynes was taken into FBI custody Thursday morning and charged with obstruction and civil rights violations for knowingly using false, misleading and incomplete information to get the no-knock search warrant for Breonna Taylor's home that led to her death. Also charged Thursday were Louisville Police Sergeant Kyle Meany, Officer Kelly Hannah Goodlett, and former Louisville Police Detective Brett Hankison. Attorney General Merrick Garland announced the indictments Thursday. Earlier today, I spoke with the family of Brianna Taylor. This morning, they were informed that the Justice Department has charged four current and former Louisville Metro Police Department officers with federal crimes related to Ms. Taylor's death. Those alleged crimes include civil rights offenses, unlawful conspiracies, unconstitutional use of force, and obstruction offenses. A fifth search warrant was for Brianna Taylor's home which was approximately 10 miles away from the West End. The federal charges announced today allege that members of the Place-Based Investigations Unit falsified the affidavit used to obtain the search warrant of Ms. Taylor's home, that this act violated federal civil rights laws, and that those violations resulted in Ms. Taylor's death. Ms. Taylor was at home with another person who was in lawful possession of a handgun. When officers broke down the door to Ms. Taylor's apartment, that person, believing that intruders were breaking in, immediately fired one shot, hitting the first officer at the door. Two officers immediately fired a total of 22 shots into the apartment. One of those shots hit Ms. Taylor in the chest and killed her. That was Attorney General Merrick Garland, the head of the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division. Assistant Attorney General Kristen Clark also spoke Thursday. 
The indictment alleges that by preparing a false affidavit to secure a search warrant for Breonna Taylor's homes, defendants Jaynes and Meany willfully deprived Breonna Taylor of her constitutional right to be free from unreasonable searches and seizures. And we allege that Ms. Taylor's death resulted from that violation. In a separate indictment, the grand jury charges former LMPD detective Brett Hankison with using unconstitutionally excessive force during the raid on Ms. Taylor's home. Without a lawful objective justifying the use of deadly force, defendant Hankison traveled away from Ms. Taylor's doorway to the side of the building and fired 10 shots into Breonna Taylor's apartment through a bedroom window and a sliding glass door that were both covered with blinds and curtains. That was Assistant Attorney General Kristen Clark. She's head of the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division. We go now to Louisville, where we're joined by Sadiqa Reynolds, president and CEO of the Louisville Urban League. Welcome back to Democracy Now!, Sadiqa. Can you respond to these federal charges that were brought against these four officers? The two white officers who actually shot Breonna Taylor were not charged. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me again. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, you know, we understand and we've always understood in Louisville that all of the officers might not be charged. But I have to tell you, this is a great step in the right direction. There really has been a sense of relief in Louisville among the family members, among protesters, among those of us who have really tried to encourage people to keep their hope, um, to, you know, really have some faith in our system. I, this this certainly this idea that any of these officers are charged with killing Breonna Taylor, it, it has really been a big deal and has been celebrated in Louisville. We know it's not over, um, but we are extremely thankful for the Department of Justice. I have to tell you that. Mm. I want to go to Breonna Taylor's mother, Tamika Palmer, who spoke at a news conference in Louisville yesterday. She criticized the Kentucky Attorney General, Daniel Cameron. You don't deserve to be where you are and you need to go. And if we don't continue to eat him, one of y'all's on the menu next. He, he was dead wrong. It didn't start with him, but he had the first, he had the right to do the right thing and he chose not to. So, Sadiqa Reynolds, let's talk about this. Federal civil rights charges have been brought against these four officers, um, but the state charges were never brought, except against Brett Hankison for wantonly shooting into the blind-covered windows, the bullets going into the next-door neighbors who were white. He was ultimately acquitted of that. Now he's been charged again. But what about um, Daniel Cameron, his significance? He's running uh, for governor next year to be governor or even to run for governor. He clearly did a disservice. And what we want an investigation into is uh, what did Daniel Cameron know? Where did he get the information? What did he share with the uh, grand jury? How can it be that the federal government and state government are so far apart on this case? 
Uh, we are concerned that he is either incompetent or in collusion. We're not sure um, that people do deserve to understand because all of these people, all of these officers of the court are sworn to uphold and um, seek justice. And in this case in Kentucky, everybody who had an opportunity to do the right thing, including our attorney general, failed. And we are, again, extremely thankful for the FBI keeping their eye on the ball in the Department of Justice. And I have to tell you, we have been talking a lot about this incestuous relationship between police and prosecutors. Across the country, you see the failure to prosecute police. You see the failure um, to hold them accountable. And so we haven't really seen the changes that we've needed. Sure, we've all celebrated what happened with, you know, the George Floyd case, Ahmaud Arbery case, and now Breonna Taylor's case. But we have to look at those cases where there are no charges. There is a significant problem um, between our prosecutors and our police department. But very specifically in Kentucky, we want an investigation into the office of the attorney general to understand what they knew, when they knew and what was presented. It's especially important here because remember that in the grand jury case, you had grand jurors who came forward who said this is not we were not told certain things. We are we this is not what we wanted. And so we have to figure out and get to the bottom of what exactly happened in that matter. I think it's I think it's very, very important. So, and, you know, I oh, wanted go to go back to this issue of Cameron, because uh, at a 2020 news conference announcing the grand jury's findings, Cameron said jurors agreed homicide charges were not warranted against the officers because they were fired upon. I'm reading from AP right now. That prompted three of the jurors to come forward and dispute Cameron's account, arguing Cameron's staff limited their scope and did not give them an opportunity to consider homicide charges against the police in Breonna Taylor death, Sadiqa Reynolds. That's that's that. And that is the point. We need to understand what the scope of his investigation was, uh, what was presented to that grand jury. What did he know and what did he allow the grand jury to know? Was there any look at all into the warrant? And if not, why? Because at the point that he convened the grand jury, this city protesters, um, every person, everybody in the city was saying there are problems with the warrant. There are problems with this case. We were identifying things. Some of these things were so blatant and obvious that laymen were identifying them. So we need to understand more about what our attorney general did or did not do, because it, it, it does feel like there may have been some predisposition as to what that case and how the case was going to turn out. And I think it's important for those grand jurors to be heard. I mean, the jury system is an important system in this country. Um, it is something that we rely on for our democracy. So we ought to hear from our jurors when they object to the process that they have been included in. Sadiqa Reynolds, we want to thank you for being with us. And of course, we'll continue to follow this case. Sadiqa Reynolds is president and CEO of Louisville Urban League. Coming up, we remember the life and legacy of Albert Woodfox, former Black Panther, who spent nearly 44 years in solitary confinement, longer than any prisoner in U.S. history. He died of COVID on Thursday. Stay with us.
Light on the Horizon by Adrian Young. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Albert Woodfox, who was held in solitary confinement longer than any prisoner in U.S. history, has died at the age of 75 due to complications of COVID-19. The former Black Panther and political prisoner won his freedom six years ago after surviving nearly 44 years in solitary confinement. He helped establish the first chapter of the Black Panther Party at the Louisiana State Penitentiary in Angola to address horrific conditions at the former cotton plantation. In 1972, he and a fellow imprisoned Panther, Herman Wallace, were falsely accused of stabbing prison guard Brent Miller to death. Wood Fox and Wallace always maintained their innocence and said they were targeted for their organizing with the Black Panthers. Miller's own widow would later urge the state of Louisiana to free Albert Wood Fox after she became convinced he was innocent. Wood Fox, Wallace, and a third Black Panther, Robert King, were collectively known as the Angola Three. For decades, Amnesty International and other groups campaigned for their release. Robert King was freed in 2001. Herman Wallace was freed in 2013, only after a federal judge threatened to jail the warden of Angola prison if he refused to release him that day. Herman Wallace died one day after his release of liver cancer. But the state of Louisiana continued to refuse to release Albert Woodfox. He was eventually freed on his 69th birthday, February 19, 2016. Three days after his release, Democracy Now!'s Renee Feltz and I interviewed Albert Woodfox in his first live TV interview. Albert Woodfox, can you talk about your plans today? You've walked out of the prison. You haven't been free in 45 years what are you most struck by? Uh, what are your greatest challenges now or your moments of joy since Friday? Uh, for me, you know, as strange as it may sound, you know, when I was in, in, in prison, I had established who I was and ways to fight for what I believed in. Being released in society— I'm having to learn different techniques, you know, of how to—I'm just trying to learn how to be free. I've been locked up so long, and a prison within a prison. So for me, it's just about learning how to live as a free person and uh, just take my time. Right now, the world is just speeding so fast for me, and I have to find a way to just slow it down. And, uh, you know, just enjoy my family. That's been a great uh, uh, source of energy, uh, being able to sit down with King and laugh and, and touch him. And he touched me and hug each other and stuff is, you know, grateful. Uh, he has been a man that ever since he walked out of prison, uh, he has spent the last 15 or more years of his life fighting for the get me and harm out 
And, you know, there are very few human, be human beings who have shown the character and the strength and the determination as my friend and comrade Robert King. You know, the Black Panther Party may not exist, but we still exist. Hmm. And we continue to—we uh, will continue to struggle to free some of our comrades and, uh, and to, you know, just stand, you know, uh, shoulder to shoulder and uh, uh, try to take on all of the injustices uh, that we can that goes on in uh, America every day. Albert, it's so great to have you join us. Can you explain the significance of going to visit your mother's gravesite and why that was the first place that you wanted to go? Well, when my mom passed away, I had made request to go to her funeral and say my final goodbye. Uh, Wardenboro Kane uh, denied that request and the same thing happened with my sister when she passed away. Uh, my family and friends had made arrangements to uh, allow me to go and say goodbye. Again, Wardenboro can't deny that. So for some years now, there has always been this emptiness when it came, you know, to my mom and my sister because I never had a chance to say that final goodbye. And so that's why it was important that one of my first acts of being free was to relieve that burden off of my soul. That was Albert Woodfox speaking on Democracy Now! February 22nd, 2016, three days after his release, after over 40 years in solitary confinement. Following his release, Albert would go on to spend years speaking out against solitary confinement while campaigning for the release of other political prisoners. He also wrote a remarkable memoir with Leslie George titled Solitary, Unbroken by Four Decades in Solitary Confinement, My Story of Transformation and Hope. The memoir won an American Book Award and was a finalist for both the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award. In 2019, Democracy Now!'s Juan Gonzalez and I interviewed Albert Woodfox in our New York studio after the publication of the book. And how do you feel today? How have you adjusted after 43 years in prison? Well, hopefully. You know, uh, one of, you know, Robin and I still travel around across America and outside of America to talk about uh, solitary confinement, which uh, we believe is the most horrible and brutal non-physical attack upon a human being by another human being. Um, Throughout my four decades plus of solitary confinement, I've watched men go insane. I've watched men physically hurt themselves, uh, uh, you know, trying to deal with the uh, pressure of being confined to a nine-by-six cell 23 hours out of every 24-hour period. And uh, being free now, I still suffer you know, claustrophobic attacks, uh, I'm, I'm able to address them better now because uh, my physical movement is beyond nine feet now. 
And so, you know, I can walk in my house. I can go in the backyard of my house. I can go on the sidewalk or there's a park, which I often uh, visit a block and a half away from my house. So the only remedy for me when I had claustrophobic sites was attacks uh, uh, with the space, you know. So this this has made it easier to deal with uh, those attacks. And you write— Gassing prisoners was the number one response by security to deal with any prisoner at Angola who demanded to be treated with dignity. In the 70s, we were gassed so often every prisoner in CCR almost became immune to the tear gas. You were being gassed in solitary confinement. Yeah, well, you know, the sergeants were provided with these little—it's like a little deodorant can, you know. And uh, if you would— uh, try to get a certain, like, more toilet paper, or, or, or you're complaining about the toilet in your cell not working, uh, you know, and uh, if the officer didn't like the way you were talking, you know, or if you were trying to defend yourself for being handling a disrespectful man and stuff, you know, they would squirt the gas in your face, you know. And uh, usually uh, that would be followed by—they would come into your cell and beat you and handcuff you, then bring it, put you in what's called a dungeon, you know. In in the book, you describe very graphically the situation at Angola when you first got there, before you were in solitary, and the rampant um, uh, rapes that were occurring in the prison. And, and once you became politically conscious uh, and you were returned there, you uh, you talk about how you insisted that on your uh, in your section of, that there was going to be no more rapes. Uh, and talk about that and the impact that the your political organizing had on the way you dealt with your fellow prisoners? Well, the incident that uh, started the prison chapter of the party to form anti-rape squads was, I was in my dormitory, I was housing Hickory Ford at that time, and this young kid was assigned a bed across from me. And the saddest thing I've ever witnessed in my life is to look at another human being and see that his spirit has been shattered. You know, and this kid... You know, he was just sitting there, and I could see tears rolling out of his eyes, you know. And, and you know, I, I, I always have believed that in life, an individual incident raises your level of consciousness. And so once your level of consciousness is raised, you become aware of whatever conditions, individuals. And so how you respond to that, you know, is pretty much determined on that level of consciousness. And... I think at that moment that I said, I, I can no longer accept this. I can no longer tolerate this. So the next day, I had a talk with Harmon Wallace. Uh, and we had, you know, we used to go out on the football field. That's how we used to have our meetings. Like we were practicing football, throwing the football around and having political discussions and stuff. And so we discussed with the other members about, you know, the rape uh, and slave uh, trade that was going on in Angola. And so we decided to start providing uh, protection for these kids coming in to let them know that they had a other, a other options other than being uh, made victims, you know. How did you maintain your sanity 44 <laughs> years in solitary confinement? 
Well, I think the fact that, you know, I was a member of the Black Panther Party, I had a political consciousness, I had uh, values and principles instilled by, you know, my mom that I grew, grew into, you know, I didn't realize uh, how much uh, my mom had, you know, built, had set a foundation in me, in me, even though I was resisting it. And, you know, uh, over the decades, there were, you know, we had programs geared toward making the men better. We had schools. Uh, we used to hold schools and political classes and, and, and you know, but, you know, as many battles as we won, as many men as we saved, uh, as many men as we helped to keep their sanity, we lost, you know, twice as many men, you know. And, uh you know, uh, there were times when, you know, I had to fight really hard for my own sanity, you know, and I thank the fact that what I was doing, you know, uh, throughout all this, I developed an unbelievable love for humanity and dedicated, you know, myself to doing whatever I could to better humanity. And so... I remember reading something from, uh, from Mr. Mandela, and he said, if, no, if a cause is noble, you can carry the weight of the world on your shoulders. And I thought what we were doing was a noble cause. So we were prepared. And so the beatings and the gassings and the decades of solitary confinement, you know, was really all painful and difficult. It never got to the point where they were able to break us. It's amazing to me that rather than just leaving it all behind, I mean, it was so, it already consumed so many decades of your life. You are spending your life free talking about what's happening inside. I think, to say the least, it's impossible for anyone who hasn't gone through this to understand what it means to live in a six by nine foot cell for more than four decades. How did you maintain your sanity? Describe for us, being in that cell, what it felt like. You know, well, actually, this, the measurements of the cell are six by nine, six feet wide, nine feet long. But there is actually less space available because you have two bunks attached to the wall that takes up half of the cell, and you have a toilet bowl, face bowl combination on the back wall, and you have a, a iron a table with a bench on the thing. So you have a very narrow uh, pathway in which you can move back and forward in the cell. Um, you know, when, when you're first put in solitary confinement, you know, you, 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 uh, you go through this period where uh, you, you want to scream, you know, because, uh, you know, you, nothing you can do uh, to fight this. This, this uh, well, you know, I, I, in hindsight, I would say it was probably the early stage of claustrophobic, you know, and, uh, you know, but it uh, depends on the individual. As time goes on, you, you learn, you learn to, re to control uh, your emotions, your, your 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 feeling of being uh, smothered and being confined, uh, uh, and so you know. But then you know, uh, you know, we first put this in solitary confinement. You could only have like two or three pair of underwear and a t-shirt and 
Uh, you know, you couldn't have books or radios or any those things. Those things were gained later as a result of uh, a resistance and organizing and hunger strikes and, and, and stuff like it that we wanted the right to, you know, change. Albert, you wrote, My proudest achievement in all my years in solitary was teaching a man to read. Yes. How did you do that, and who was this man? Well, uh, his name is Charles, and we became good friends. And since, you know, my mom couldn't read or write anything but our name, you know, there are certain things, people that can't read or write, certain techniques they use and stuff. And so I picked this up on him. And, you know, uh, the CCR, the cell block, is 15 men to a cell. And the uniqueness about, I guess, uh, in, in, in Louisiana, the front of the bar, cell is made out of bars. It's not a completely concrete enclosed cell. So I just asked him one day, I said, man, you know, don't get mad, but, you know, can you read or write, you know? And he said, you know, no, I can't. And I just told him, I said, well, I can help you learn how to read and write, but you got to really want it. You got to want this better than anything. And so I use a dictionary, uh, starting off, you know, at the and dictionaries at the bottom of each page. There's a sound key on how you pronounce words as to how they spell, you know. And I taught him about, uh, you know, vowels and and adjectives, and you know, just basically, you know, and show him, you know, learn, uh, teach him how to shape words, and, and and but and he really wanted it, you know, because I told him I said the. Uh, you know, any time, I don't care what night or day, you you hit a, a wall, you call me. And he's called me two and three in the morning, you know. And uh, I can't pronounce this word. So I would ask him to spell it. And then I'd remind him of, you know, the, the voice key at the bottom of the page and how you pronounce, you know, alphabets as, you know, and... Uh, and help him, you know. He was in solitary, too. Yeah, he was about three or four cells down for me. How do you communicate? How did you communicate with other people in solitary? Well, you talk all up and down the tier, you know. This is one of the way I developed the habit of uh, waking up in the very early, uh, you know, a.m., because the tears stop showering. There's no noise. The doors are not opening and closing. And, you know, so you are able to really concentrate on what you're doing. So even even now, you know, I wake up 3, 3.30, you know, uh, in the morning, you know, and this is when I do most of my read. I still read, try to read at least two hours a day. So there are some things, uh, habits that I develop in prison I still try to hold on to. Your final thoughts as you go out into the world, as you travel the world, uh, taking advantage of every moment uh, in the free world? Well, you know, my, my, my hope has always been, you know, for a better humanity. And to try to be a part of that, to try to say something or do something that will make, if there's no more than one human being, stop and think and, you know, uh, start a dialogue that can leave into, that can uh, change into a movement. You know, I've always said that one individual can cause chaos, mass movements can cause change. 
So, I, you know, I still firmly believe in that. And so that's, you know, Robin and I are in Harmon. You know, we were in prison. The one thing we always noticed is that we didn't have a voice. And because of the men and women and children that were hid behind the walls of prison and in solitary, nobody knew what we looked like. So we had made a vow that we would be the voice of those men and women and children, and we would be the face. You know, I think what um, uh, people in, uh, in America and around the world have to realize, that prisoners don't come from another planet. They come from your family. They come from homes, and they might make mistakes. Usually the economic uh, system brings the pressure. And, you know, I mean, I know that there's a very small percentage of human beings who do some horrible things, you know. But the overwhelming majority, you know, uh, you know, come with, you know, they come, you come from a family. You don't come from an alien planet. And they need to, they need to you know, uh, uh, remember that. And they need to uh, love them and support them, you know, because prisons are all, any state institution, uh, without, without oversight and without consequences, unchecked power corrupts. And that's the situation you have in, in, in prisons in this country. Former Black Panther Albert Woodfox speaking on Democracy Now! in 2019, shortly after the publication of his award-winning book, Solitary. Unbroken by four decades in solitary confinement, my story of transformation and hope. He died Thursday of COVID at the age of 75. We'll speak to his loved ones after break. wants to be the first to say goodbye by Gladys Knight and the Pips, a favorite of Albert Woodfox. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As we continue to remember the life and legacy of Albert Woodfox, the former Black Panther, who spent nearly 44 years in solitary confinement, longer than any prisoner in U.S. history. He died of COVID-19 at the age of 75 on Thursday six years after he was freed from the Angola prison in Louisiana. We're joined now by three guests. Robert King was imprisoned with Albert Woodfox for decades at Angola. The two of them and the late Herman Wallace were known as the Angola Three. Corrine Williams is with us from Middlesex, New Jersey. She's one of Albert Woodfox's longtime attorneys. And in New Orleans, we're joined by Albert Woodfox's brother, Michael Mabel. 
Michael, let's begin with you. Um, deepest, deepest condolences. You were with your brother when he died yesterday um, in the hospital in New Orleans, and you're in the studio where—well, um, in a studio, we interviewed you in New Orleans a few days after Albert was released from prison in 2016. You were again at your brother's side as you were receiving him when he was freed. Can you share your thoughts about Albert, about his life and his legacy? Well, you know, his legacy was based upon, uh, you know— change and uh no matter what uh they needed to do and bring about change you know one of the things that we live for uh, uh as myself running uh visiting with him for 40 years you know he would teach me and I would let him know things that was going out uh so you know I told him way back when I was a juvenile that at that point in time, when I was able to become a, a young man, that uh, I would visit with him and be with him uh, until, you know, to death do us part. And I made a, a solely vow, and I continue to honor that vow that his legacy go on. So, uh, you know, he, his body is gone, but I want his voice to be spoken to the world and continues. And... Uh, He's speaking through me now to let, you know, let us know that uh, we, we can't stop. You know, there's a lot of change need to be done and, uh, you know, whatever we can do. And that's my plight is to, con is to continue to do what he would want done. And I promise him in that. So, you know, it was kind of hard, you know, but it only strengthened me. And, uh, you know, I just want to keep his legacy going. Uh, you know, and I just want to, you know, like you said, like glad I said, change is going to come. And, uh, and anything I can do to honor that, to make that change, I want to be a part of it. I want to turn to a clip of you sitting next to Albert three days after his 69th birthday, uh, that moment when you came on Democracy Now! and uh, he was free. This is what you said then. The only thing I felt and the only thing I can answer is that I know he's a free man when I'm able to walk across the seal of the door with him. <laughs> and that reality set in when we was able to do that. We're showing the picture of the two of you together, uh, Michael. What was it like when he came out of prison? You were there to greet him. Uh, when he came out of prison, uh, I, I noticed one of the things, you know, that— uh, uh, he was free. He was free. And uh, one of the things that he'd done before he died, and we talked about this many years ago, that he, wa he wanted his mind to be free. And, you know, that's one of the things he have in this book, you know, definitely stating. But, uh, you know, he was a free man, and he's free now. And, you know, I speak, you know, for him and through myself to the world. And I just want him to know that— uh, you know, that's one of the things we got, and that's one of the things we made vows to each other as brothers that, uh, you know, we would never uh, give up hope. And I think that may have helped him, and I'm glad as his brother played a big part of uh, allowing him to feel that that hope had came and that freedom was there. You, you know, know, that day that we interviewed you and Albert, we also interviewed Robert King in that same studio, the three of you. 
Robert King, who, when he got out of prison um, uh, about 15 years earlier, just traveled the country talking about who remained in prison. At the time, it was Herman Wallace and Albert Wood Fox. Then Herman got out. Um, when a judge threatened the warden, if he didn't release him that day, he would imprison the warden. And uh, Herman got out only to die in the next days of liver cancer. Robert King, you never stopped—and this is what you said as you sat also next to Albert Wood Fox when he was free. Uh, when you hit bottom, there's no place but up to go. And Angola was the bottom. They even call it the bottom, and rightly so. And so we were trying to get out that bottom. And I remember one way to get out the bottom is to try to come up and, and do some things to kind of offset the situation, that, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the sad situation that was going on in prison. But it, it was a comfort also to our, our own mind. I mean, we were politicized. We had uh, understood, you know, that we were or why we were being uh, targeted and, 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 and punished. And this give, this give meaning to why we should struggle more so because, you know, it was an unjust reason, um, an unjust position we were in, and we I, had to struggle against this. So that's Robert King in 2016. Um, Robert, you're joining us on the phone. Our condolences, our deepest condolences to you as well, joining us from not far from where Albert succumbed yesterday to COVID. Um, your thoughts? Hi, Amy. Um, you referring to me? Amy? Yes. Hi, Robert. If you can share your thoughts today on yes. your oh, on on Albert Woodfox, his life and his death. Yes. Okay. Can you hear me? We hear you perfectly. Yes. Well, I was listening to Albert. Oh, I've been listening to the program since it started. Uh, wow kind of hard to, you know, to, to, to get it in my mind, it seemed as if Albert was in the, in the room with me, but that, those are my, my sentiments. But look, Albert, uh, my sentiments now, you know, uh, Albert, he was my brother. Uh, he was my friend. Uh, uh, I'm going to miss him, you know, together. Uh, he faded best. Uh, uh, we saw some things that was amiss in prison and out of prison. And, uh, we decided that we could add our little pepper to the pond. And so, um, just in short, he decided to do just that. He threw the pebbles in the pond, knowing that they would create a ripple and knowing that they would eventually create um tsunami effect and uh, he understood his, his reasoning for uh, ex existing and he lived out that um, it's kind of hard uh, for me to believe you know but then again you know the pebbles that he threw in the pond became ripples became a wave and uh, so this will carry him on into eternity he won't be forgotten uh he will certainly Again. not be forgotten. Um, I wanted to go back to 1972, when Albert 
and fellow imprisoned Black Panther Herman Wallace were falsely accused of stabbing the prison guard Brent Miller to death. Woodfox and Wallace always maintained their innocence. They said they were targeted for being Black Panthers. In fact, Miller's own widow, Teeny Rogers, would later urge Louisiana to free Albert and Herman after she became convinced they were innocent. This is her in the 2010 documentary In the Land of the Free. I've been living this for 36 years. There's not a year that goes by that I don't have to relive this. And it just keeps going and going. And then these men, I mean, if they did not do this, and I believe that they didn't, they have been living a nightmare for 36 years. So that, that was Teeny Rogers. Kareen um, Williams was one of Albert Fox's longtime attorneys, but that doesn't really describe her relationship, his beloved attorney, Kareen Williams. Kareen, can you talk about the significance of why he was held, like Herman Wallace uh, and like Robert King? for so many years, again, uh, to be this dubious distinction of the longest-held prisoner in solitary confinement in this country for over 43 years. Yes, good morning, Amy. Um, and I, I can talk about that. Um, as you mentioned, he was convicted wrongfully in 1972 along with Herman Wallace for the murder of this corrections officer, Officer Miller. Um, and at the time, just by happenstance, the Supreme Court had declared the death penalty unconstitutional in America. And so, you know, our position had been based on the evidence as we litigated the cases in Herman's case and, and Albert's case, that prison officials really um, put them in the cells and you know, told them that they were going to throw away the key since they couldn't execute them. So it was intended to be a extra punitive um, sentence that was not, you know, given to them by a judge or through any lawful process, but by these prison officials at Angola prison. Um, and for the next, you know, in Albert's case, 44 years, nearly 44 years, um, they were not only fighting to clear their name and overturn their convictions, but also fighting against these unconstitutional conditions that they were in of 23 hours a day in isolation um, for basically the duration of their life sentences is what uh, the prison officials of Angola prison were seeking. We only have 30 seconds, but if you can say how you finally got him out. Oh, well, it certainly wasn't me alone. There was a legion of uh, lawyers, paralegals, experts, and then people all across the world and um, in communities near and far um, who supported these efforts of rolling boulders up mountains uh, to get Mr. Woodfox out in 2016. And, you know, since we we're limited on time, I'll just say, Amy, I'm so glad that you played the clip of Albert talking about, you know, if a cause is noble, a man can carry the weight of the world on his shoulders um, with his passing. We're going you know, to have to leave it there. But I thank you so much, Corrine Williams and Michael Mabel and Robert King. We will all remember Albert Wood Fox. I'm Amy Goodman.